welcome to Permaculture Tonight. We've got Rye and Flint tonight. And we kind of go all over the map. It's such an interesting conversation I had with him. I, it was recommended that I talk to him at Bioneers by my good friend Seth Peterson, Chef Seth. Um, he's the permaculture chef, if you don't know. Uh, we're going to have him on later this week, hopefully. But right now we have Ryan Flint. We're talking about rewilding. We're talking about his work uh, that he does with people that need rewilding most. And it is fascinating. So let's just dive in. at some of the permaculture events and also a lot of the major electronic music festivals throughout the year. Nice. And is there like an overlap or just work? Uh, there's definitely overlap. There's, um, I, I feel like there's uh, this, at least this year, there's been a big increase in the number of permaculture uh, type activities and permaculture hubs and uh, things centering around permaculture at a lot of these electronic music festivals. And really? it's wow. nice kind of talking to people that are kind of fresh to this too, where it's kind of like a new thing. Uh, a lot of the other festivals that they do are kind of like earth skills gatherings or permaculture convergences. And it feels like a little more like speaking to the choir, but yeah, it's uh, definitely, there's a bunch of the same people at both of these kind of events. That's fascinating. So what do you think precipitated that? Like, what led to that? Oh, boy, I don't know. That's a, that's a good question as far as um, why this is all precipitated now or why it's really coming to the front now. Um, I guess I have my own personal theories, which is that, um, you know, kind of combination of the time has come and people are really looking for solutions, like realistic solutions to a lot of these problems that we're seeing in the world. And um, really just people in the permaculture and sustainability realm kind of just pushing the envelope and really reaching out and realizing they need to reach, you know, more people and younger people and, you know, feeling that electronic music festivals are kind of that avenue. That's so awesome. I'm so glad to hear that. I I had no idea. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you're all over the internet. There's all these different websites I found, and you're, you're kind of centering your attack on finding out uh, how to live like a human again and rewilding. So let's talk about that. So I guess I was uh, inspired to start using the term rewilding um, from a gentleman named Daniel Vitalis. And uh, I would say he's definitely more out there on the internet than I am. He's, uh, he's been up to this for uh, at least three years, really pushing his uh, different companies and uh, kind of an online magazine running blog that he did throughout the year last year, um, releasing eight different major articles. And um, he labels himself as kind of the... Um, the media outreach or the, the, the voice of the rewilding movement. Um, and I guess he definitely inspired me. I saw him at Lightning in a Bottle Festival uh, two years ago, and he was speaking at what was kind of like the prototype of like a permaculture, earth skills village within a festival. Um, and it was really impressive. Uh, but I guess, you know, I and others that are kind of um, really into this this kind of permaculture and earth skills movement, uh, I think we're inspired early on by people like Terrence McKenna and Daniel Quinn and other authors that wrote about this um, kind of uh, re-looking at, you know, archaeology and anthropology and where humans fit into this bigger scheme of things that, you know, we call the universe or nature. And... You know, they have the different terms, like Terrence McKenna had archaic revival, and uh, Daniel Quinn, you know, refers to things as the uh, great forgetting, as far as uh, we kind of made this turn in human society somewhere around 10,000 years ago. There's a, an author wrote Ishmael and My Ishmael, and uh, another uh, side offshoot story called Story of Bee, 
Um, and Mr. Quinn decided to use this term, the great forgetting, as a reference to kind of how we forgot how, how human beings had lived with this, within the bounds of nature for uh, most of our existence, which is somewhere around 200,000 years on this planet. And sometime around 10,000 years ago, we seemed to uh, slip away into sort of a totalitarian agriculture scheme where we decided to take land from either semi-nomadic or other people in the surrounding area and uh, take the land and, and uh, put a grid over it, put animal pens in it, put uh, city streets, what we now call civilization. And so this this term, this, this uh, strange chain of events that happened around that time seemed to uh, have created this uh, general amnesia where it's only now, you know, thousands of years later that we're finally figuring out how we had lived up to that point and what a drastic change occurred in the human species around that time. That's beautiful. I, I really feel like we're in the Great Awakening, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I Great feel journey. like it's like a renaissance. The way the renaissance was was that the people started questioning everything they were told and started wanting to know things for themselves. And uh, that's why people started reading, uh, you know, the Gutenberg Press, uh, the Bible started spreading everywhere. Everyone wanted to read it for themselves. They wanted to know for themselves. It's where scientific, um, the scientific method took off. People wanted to test things themselves. They wanted to understand. And I feel like the internet precipitated a cultural shift into this global consciousness that is causing a great awakening. Yeah, most definitely. Um, we, we have, uh, I mean, people have termed this as the information age. And so we're at this point where, unlike in the past, where there was a very small percentage of the population that could read, we now have access to all this information that's been written down for the last, uh, you know, 2,000 to 3,000 years, uh, depending on the translation. But well, we also now know, have the ability to receive information via images. We, have, we can now watch video and listen to audio. And so we can consume more information in a more digestible way, in, in a way that is more akin to how we used to learn uh, throughout much of our history. You know, interestingly enough, before public schools, literacy rates were over 90%, and now they're like 60% in America. So <laughs> Part of our degeneration. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, we watch things, you know, and we, we're obviously, you know, being entertained by the boxes around us, but um, I feel like that reading actually was something that we uh, more, more we held tighter, and I think we're going to hold tighter in the next generation, for sure. Um, but I think that we are, we had to degenerate in order to awaken. Like the forgetting had to become damaging, right, for it to become noticeable. <laughs> yeah, we had to wake up to. It. We had to kind of be snapped out of this trance and see what's going on around us. A lot of people attribute that to the to the seeing the first image of the Earth taken from space. So I find a lot of irony in, in a lot of these things with the digital communication and and quicker communication, worldwide communication, and this view of the superorganism of Gaia, the Earth, from away, and us looking at that image really evokes this, this powerful uh, sense of belonging, you know, to the Earth. And, you know, it's, um, it's kind of a juxtaposition, because the point on how we got here is through more and more advanced technologies and industrial civilization, and some of these things that have allowed us to, you know, break free of some of the the traps and, and patterns that have put us here in the first place. I think part of it is because of when we centralize information, when we centralize um, and bend like societies around like individuals or small groups of individuals, uh, it's impossible for other people to manage large, large groups of other people. So uh, it just ends up twisting. And so in order to keep things, you know, 
understandable. They need to reduce things and simplify things. And that's not how nature works. So we've been making human civilization unnatural to make it manageable as we've been growing it at a um, extremely fast rate. Yeah, even before the advent of science, um, humans from the very beginning tried that process of simplification. They really tried to label things, put things in a box, put things in a unit, um, and you can categorize things. It's easier to, to put them into groupings and simplify it. And part of that is our own human groupings. Um, some of uh, your listeners may have heard of the term Dunbar's number, which is uh, also referred to as the monkey spear. But there's a, a primatologist, uh, named, his last name is Dunbar, and he uh, found this number correlation between the size of social groups of primates and their brain size. And so he extrapolated that out to figure that uh, human beings, for the most part, uh, plus or minus a little, uh, range around 150 people that they really know and trust and and feel are part of their tribe. And um, so that gets extrapolated out to the, like, best uh, corporate size is about 150 people. The best size, you know, maximum size you want for a working group is about 150 people. That's about how many people we have as uh, contacts on our phone people that we call somewhat regularly and then you know kind of creates like a circle you have a kind of like tighter inner group of your family members and your close friends and it goes outwards all the way till people you know you kind of met and see and you recognize you don't really remember their name or you know they you don't see them as other but then you know they're they're kind of far out in your in your bubble and it kind of creates a, a number around 150 pretty interesting I mean, part of this control system um, is, you know, this centralization and this monoculture, you know, trying to trying to keep everything into a minimal amount of choices. And, you know, that, that also stems from this, this, you know, I feel like religion or any control system is a band-aid trying to fix these issues of trying to bond all of these tribal groups together in one conformed monoculture in a small amount of space. I mean, there's been lots of studies on how animal behavior, especially mammal behavior, changes when you stick them in a smaller and smaller cage. And, you know, that's basically what the mode of operation has been for, uh, you know, the last 10,000 years. And it started out, ironically, with this small group of people that could read, this small all-male scribe class that eventually became the patriarchy or, you know, started writing down the first laws, which basically deemed women, animals, and everything else as property. And um, part of this progression, you know, from that, out of that, into where we are now, has been a realization, you know, part of this awakening is realizing the, the boxes and the system that we put ourselves in so that we can, you know, realize what it is we really want to build, and also the way to build out of that. I would also add that it depends on where you are in the world. My son and I were studying Africa, and um, this African princess was so much more powerful than her brother that her brother um, feared that she would kill him because she was the greatest warrior. And she actually like fought until she was in her 70s, and so... It depends on uh, yes, totally in the Middle East and in the in in the Western cultures and echoed in the Eastern cultures, but parts of Africa, um, and I think cultures. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of argument that um, the the sexual dominance thing uh, started at a certain point, um, and that before agriculture. Have you seen the the evidence of this? I've seen articles on this, that there is evidence yeah. that men and women did not have like a patriarchal understanding of things and when they were nomadic. Yeah most, yeah, most anthropologists agree now that, that most of the societies were matriarchal and semi-nomadic, if not completely nomadic. And most of the ones that, yeah, gave rise to what we now refer to as Western culture, you know, this patriarchal culture that we have inherited is stems from... Uh, the Middle East and in areas around Turkey, around the uh, the headwaters to or the um, 
the beginning of the Tyrus and Euphrates rivers up in the mountains. This is also where the wild ancestor of wheat and barley still is. That's where they discovered the wild uh, predecessor of our common grains. And this is where some of the first ritual building temple sites were. So this is where large amounts of hunter-gatherers were coming and meeting and building astrologically aligned temples. So, you know, you can assume that there's also meetings of all the local shamans or medicine people or uh, whatever pre-priestly type figures and they would also be meeting and discussing you know their their own significant powers the you know the fact that they recognize rotations of the stars the the recognition of how grains reproduced and certain animals and grains would uh, be abundant in a certain area at a certain time of year to allow these gatherings so this is the there is some uh newer evidence i mean this some of these sites have only been discovered in the last 20 to 30 years mm -hmm. and specifically gobekeli tepe and uh cattle Hayuk, which uh is one of the ones that terence mckenna references in a lot of his research on um the matrilineal culture he was more fascinated about uh this emergence between uh iconography of cattle of bulls uh pre-domestication and post-domestication and how um, that was tied in with the magic mushroom cult because it was one of the only sources of magic mushrooms with cow dung. And so it became an early worship of like worshiping these holy cows because they produced holy poo. They once you had these animals confined into a, uh, an area that um, they didn't roam around anymore, trying to produce more and more of this magical substance. They noticed that when they spread it around and added it to these plants that they had just recently learned to domesticate, that, you know, they grew better. And part of the domestication process for both plants and animals is in selecting uh, youthful traits. In, uh, in science, it's called neotene, N-E-O-T-E-N-Y. And what that means is it's uh, youthful characteristics, yet... The, it's still able to reproduce. So in plants, especially in grains, uh, which is mainly comes from grasses, it, you're selecting uh, seeds that stay on the seed head. So technically that's still immature, but uh, by replicating those genetics, you're selecting for seeds that are going to stay on the plant longer and longer until humans come along and pluck them off and then have to replant them themselves because the seeds no longer fall off and naturally germinate. So and with them, yeah, this ties in very interestingly into something that Seth Peterson was telling me about, about, about taming wild dogs. What you're basically doing is you're making the dogs into puppies, permanent puppies. Exactly. And so what we're doing with plants and when we domesticate them is we're making like annuals of them. We're making them into like puppy plants. Exactly. Really high sugars, like just just kind of um, unripened, um, and uh, some of it is going to be hybridized and, and uh, non-fertile, um, less nutrition. Uh, they found that when all of this starts occurring, that human beings uh, started uh, becoming weaker. We had weaker skeletons, thinner skulls, easy bones would break easier, we became smaller in size, our brain size actually shrunk. Um, so the same thing happened uh, in a modern experiment. This was, you know, kind of they suspected that we were selecting, you know, the most docile cow out of the herd, and that's what we were saving and breeding and breeding for those traits. Um, but dogs were definitely the first thing that we symbiotically domesticated um, long long before any of these other events, probably around 40,000 to 50,000 years ago, before we even made it down into Australia, bringing them with us in, in the form of dingoes. But the recently, uh, in the Cold War, there was a Russian geneticist who did experiments on uh, foxes, and he started breeding, and after about 10 generations, the changes in the foxes started, instead of being just behavioral, started becoming physical changes. So they started getting curly tails and floppy ears and big puppy dog eyes. 
and mottled coats and shorter snouts and they started taking on like domesticated uh, pet uh, type qualities like peeing when they saw somebody that they liked and whimpering for food and um, very strange but they uh, after the Cold War and the secrets were revealed of what he was really doing so just running a, a fox fur coat factory out in Siberia uh, he revealed to the world that uh, what he had learned about how quick the domestication process is. And so they started studying the genetics behind it, and they found that it was a gene that was being selected for in early, early fetal development that was a uh, hormone that cascaded this uh, series of development in bone and cartilage. And so when it was slowed and you were selecting for younger and younger traits, that uh, it wouldn't these these areas wouldn't develop as well. So the cartilage that went to the ears, the uh, amount of uh, bone that was put into the skull and the snout were all less. So you had floppy ears and thinner skulls and shorter snouts. Um, same with the cartilage and the uh, materials that went into making fur and holding the tail straight. And uh, it, it was a cascade of uh, developmental things that were being selected for that through epigenetics were selected for within only 10 generations. Then it became basically a domesticated version of a fox. Do you think we've domesticated the world? Yeah, I mean, that's what we're trying to do anyway. Um, And I think more importantly, what we've done over the last 10,000 years is domesticated ourselves. And that is what has rampantly spread this, this domestication process. So... Um, there's a couple authors that have referred to human beings as uh, like the naked ape or the third chimpanzee. And these books are talking about this uh, own self-domestication process, that we are basically nietinous great apes, that we inhibit very childlike characteristics into adulthood, which is what en- enables us to have this amazing uh, adaptability that we call creativity. It allows us to, for an old human to learn new tricks, really. So we have the ability to adapt to our environment even in adulthood. That's fascinating. So, but do you think that our creativity is greater now because of our domestication or less? Yeah, I, I think it's still greater. I think it's it's ramping up into the, like, I mean, we have whole Disney dream worlds and virtual worlds, and people have absorbed more information in the first 20 years of their life than people had in the past their entire lives. I mean, that's part of the information age. But part of this is is uh, looking forward to, to where we're going in this self-domestication process. And uh, the gentleman I referred to earlier, Daniel Vitalis, uh, runs a little thought experiment, and he likes to kind of like take it into the future and like, okay, if we keep evolving this direction, uh, where are we going to go? Like, what are we going to eventually evolve into looking like? So if we're, you know, going to sit inside of our cubicles with artificial light and our eyes are going to get bigger because of the dim light and we're going to be looking at uh, touch screens and our big bulky fingers are too too thick to touch the touch screen properly well they're going to get slender and longer fingers you know our light our skin is going to become a general gray color um you know it's not going to really need to produce melatonin to melanin to uh create tan skin to fight off the sun um you know we're going to have bigger brains our brains are going to keep being bigger and bigger so we're going to have like big heads and our muscles will slowly start to atrophy as we use less and less physical power and we have robots to do everything for us. So eventually what we're going to evolve will look like like a gray alien, like the grays. (laughs) And, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's really interesting. It's a really kind of interesting experiment to play around with as far as like, you know, alternative version where we can evolve to, which is to our, tougher, nature-loving, uh, more resistant, healthy uh, ancestors. Yeah. And, you know, that's, that's also been some experiments. They, uh, part of when they uh, released this information about the silver fox breeding uh, and 
geneticists from around the world started coming over. He, they also asked him about reverse experiments. And he said he was selecting for foxes instead of ones that were uh, not just not afraid of humans, like they didn't shy away. So part of the experiment that he selected for but the uh, behavioral trait he was looking for was he'd come up to the cage. If the fox shied away or made some sound or, you know, was scared, those were the ones that uh, became uh, fur coats. And so he was selecting for ones that were okay with humans, which was a very small percentage at first and quickly increased through more breeding. And then he started breeding and selecting for what he called the vicious fox, which is foxes that not only ran away or didn't make a sound, but actually came at the person or tried to bite back or fight back. And so he started breeding those together and he came up with like a hyper wild, vicious fox that just couldn't be tamed and was, uh, was extra furry. It was extra furry? Uh, and extra furry, yeah. Wow. <laughs> and maybe tougher bones. Um, and that's all on a, uh, there's a great radio lab episode about that and it's called the new normal. It's about, uh, how people and things have the ability to change rapidly. It does. Nature has the ability to adapt incredibly rapidly. That's why you could have seeds that just don't grow, you know, well within three generations give you unbelievable things. Yeah, exactly. You know, one of the things that has really given me hope lately, and I think has become a pretty big uh, blip on the news stories, is uh, the the experiment that's happening, or it's really beyond experimental stage now, uh, in Yellowstone with reintroducing the wolves. And uh, there's a wonderful TED Talk. I think one of the only TED Talks that is termed rewilding is actually, uh, I think it's George Monobot, uh speaking about rewilding and, and the introduction of wolves back in the Yellowstone. And what it's created is a trophic cascade, which is a scientific uh, fancy term for more and more energy and more and more vegetation and more animals increasing in a system to bring it up to the next trophic level. And so by introducing wolves, it pushed the deer and the elk out of the streams where they were overgrazing a lot of the vegetation and mucking up the water. And by them leaving and the, the wolves kind of pushing out some of the other minor predators like coyotes, uh, beavers started coming back in the area and foxes and other animals um, that were normally overabundant like uh, rodents that were eating the seeds started getting eaten by some of these foxes and the beavers started making dams that were backing up the water and, you know, slowly pushing the water back into the landscape. And within only a few years, vegetation returned and you, they could detect like a massive amount of tree growth on satellite images. But what they didn't expect was the water to return. So streams that were seasonal all of a sudden started running year round and those all cascaded down into the river system. So the rivers stayed full longer. And so then the salmon returns started getting bigger. And so everything in the entire ecosystem cascaded down and just naturally returned, naturally became more abundant, all just through the introduction of a top level predator doing what it was supposed to be doing. Right, so it's, it's like balance is not a number that you quantify, balance in nature is all the participants being present. Exactly. Pretty Very sobering well when we think about what we've done to uh, all our farmland because, and all our native pollinators. But at the same time, as you said, we can take this back and nature responds so fast. Well, I think that's one of the reasons that I like to give a lot of these talks and workshops at electronic music festivals because I feel like you know, the people that really need to be reached are people that are in these urban environments and exposed to, you know, a lot of these modern lifestyles that are basically unhealthy. And um, part of engaging in our real life, I mean, I think a lot of people are a little daunted because they'll look out there and, you know, they'll say, okay, I can't just go walk right back into nature. You know, a lot of people haven't, didn't grow up, you know, camping or hiking or, you know, interfacing with nature so it can seem kind of scary. And um, 
part of the the reintroduction of ourselves back into nature uh, is a little more difficult because we've lost a lot of the natural systems that uh, would support us if we were to, you know, just quote unquote walk back into nature. Um, like we're, you know, we're about four percent of the original or old growth forest that were on this continent, and so I, I feel part of us stepping, you know, back into nature and and uh, grappling with this is where permaculture comes in. And one of my approaches is getting people to think about food forestry. And so food forestry is, uh, or agroforestry, is this concept of using perennials or plants that come back every year or live uh, all year round, um, non-annuals, are basically introduced into a system where they're all symbiotically working with each other, like a natural forest would. So as you know, humans and understanding all of this with all this information that we have, we can use this to design systems that mimic how nature naturally would occur. That's what I find beautiful about permaculture because it understands things in cyclical nature and cycles instead of this linear kind of take something, make something, and then throw it away system. So one of my favorite activities and favorite activities to introduce other people to is wild mushroom hunting. I think it's one of the things that uh, personally kind of pulled me out of the academia kind of uh, process and, and um, pulled me into nature. It's really fun. It's like a, it's almost like a game. You get to um, go out there and you're searching for stuff and, you know, you're, you're trying to find the ones with the right colors or the right smell, or the right look. And at the same time, part of mushroom hunting is in, uh, in the wild is finding gourmet mushrooms that cannot be grown uh, in a laboratory. They require a certain uh, group of symbiosis of trees and soil types and pH of soil and it's only in these certain conditions that these mushrooms will pop up. They're symbiotically entangled into the root systems of these older growth trees. They, they literally, the, the fungal cells reach in between the plant cells in the, in the roots and they exchange sugars and water and nutrients in different uh, back and forth balances that support the different life systems of both the fungus and the tree. So you end up learning some of you know the native trees and the and you end up seeing a bunch of the animals that live in these environments. So even though you're just immersing yourself in what seems like a fun novel activity, it's a whole cascade in and of itself of, of learning all these uh, things that are present around you. I mean, I tell people usually at the end of my talks to uh, try to learn seven organisms or seven trees that are native to the area around you, just in your, your neighborhood or in, you know, your specific ecozone or your city. People here don't know plants either. And it's like the older generation does, but the younger generation has no idea. And recently, as I've made this transition, it seems like other people are making this transition where I have former students of mine who are like 18 to 20 who are circling back and they're either working or taking other classes and they want to take my class because they want to understand how everything works. They want to understand how they could just live off the land if they needed to because they want to incorporate those things where they can. And that kind of approach is so different than what I grew up with. I mean, man, the 80s, it was like, if it was on TV, I could like learn about it in a quick commercial break. And then it was like in the back of a, like a magazine, I could order things, you know? It's like now they just look on their phones and type a few keywords in, and they can like watch a video on it. And 30 minutes later, they can be much more articulate on it than I could on concepts at their age because there just wasn't as there wasn't the media there so I feel like there's this huge potential for there to be an exponential change especially in this in this instance but are, how, how, how are people gonna get the information are you are you working on a book do you have videos online or do you have some upcoming uh, speaking 
engagements that we could attend? Yeah, I'm, um, I'm going to be going through round two of most of the major festivals uh, coming up in 2016. I usually start out at Lucidity Festival and then uh, kind of work my way up the coast to uh, different ones like Lightning in a Bottle and um, Enchanted Forest and uh, ended up at Symbiosis, kind of the last one. But I also do local stuff up in Mendocino County, like the Not-So-Simple Living Fair. Um, some of that stuff is until the summer. Um, my mushroom hunting courses and uh, events center around uh, Mendocino Coast, uh, Point Arena. Sometimes we'll uh, do a kind of impromptu uh, mushroom information, mushroom gathering, great world of mushrooms talk, uh, kind of mid-mushroom season at a little bar and grill out on the coast in Point Arena. Um, I'm working on a couple videos that uh, need to be edited, and I'll be posting those up on my website. I have a couple of my talks from last year at different festivals on my SoundCloud page, and my SoundCloud page is Ryan Flint, R-Y-E, middle initial N, F-L-I-N-T. And uh, yeah, I'm working on a book. I've been working on it for the last couple years. Um, it's always hard finishing it because all sorts of new information is always coming up. <laughs> um, but part of, I guess, all this information access, it's really interesting kind of working with the, the current media and current uh, information release paradigm of all these different forms of media. But yeah, I mean, I, even uh, myself, I love accessing YouTube to be able to watch do-it-yourself videos to learn how to you know, instantly just download somebody else's idea and, and uh, replicate it out and big into open source and creating models that people can branch from. I just finished up a uh, blog on my website that is how to build a tiny home for $50. Wow. And that's what I live in. I live in a home that I built myself for $50 out of all recycled resources. So that's that kind of what I'm incredible. doing now. I'm kind of trying to push some appropriate technologies and uh, this new kind of philosophy of reintegration with nature. And I, I think a lot of the younger generation is coming to this because of this access to information. Like you were referring to the UN report a little earlier in the interview and um, you know, talking about how their recommendations are to basically live a smaller, uh, decentralized, do-it-yourself, produce as much of your own food as you can lifestyle. And I think a lot of the kids nowadays have really come to this conclusion are really reaching out and seeking some of this information because they've seen so much information on how screwed up the world is, you know. And for the first time ever, we're able to, you know, not just learn something on YouTube, but also have access to this vast wealth of information that really explains the system that we're in. A lot of people can see that the industrial civilization system is just not going to work. It's not sustainable. And the ultimate conclusion is that it's either going to collapse itself or we're going to change and create a different kind of system slowly but surely. So people are, I think, are naturally just seeking that out and seeking these answers and figuring out you know, how they fit into this, into the solution. You know, historically... When big realizations hit, they tend to move so fast. And when they hit people in the heart, they tend to be transformative. I mean, I, I don't know if you're old enough, you, you probably are, but um, 1989, when the wall fell, I mean, it was crazy how fast those things changed. And it wasn't like pieces held on, it was like, it was like a, a, a way of thinking changed. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, totally. And yeah, they had, you know, they, 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 Russia is its own thing, but the way consciousness changes, like the way the Gutenberg Bible spread and the way skepticism and the scientific methods spread, these things, when they touch humans' hearts and minds and they connect those two things, whew, especially when they're tied to reality. 
um, and people's uh, children's future. Things change really fast. And I think that we're just seeing, what we're seeing now is the soil developing for the seeds that we're planting. And, you know, we're seeing rocks in the soil, but we're also seeing deep, rich soil that's ready. That's a great metaphor. Yeah, I'm a soil scientist by um, training. And um, so soil is always very true to my heart. I think that's one of the things that we're really working on right now is, is really trying to, um, you know, rebuild this base and the base of everything. Yeah, absolutely. Because the thing is, it's like, what, what is our basis in our society right now? Well, it's um, actually public school because that's yeah. what trains us in how to act, what's right, right and wrong, what's fair. And I know families have a part in that, but less and less every single day do families have a part in that. Um, both parents work now because they have to. Um, 30 years ago, that wasn't the case uh, for everyone. And so we're, we're on this, you know, we're propelling ourselves uh, and our only guide on that, that, that trajectory is a failing public education system. Yeah, <laughs> and, I mean, that's, that's number one is education. Yeah, and the, and, and the parents realize it. The kids realize it. They're going through, and everyone's kind of looking around. Where's the, the like? What's gonna happen? And they're like, Yeah, yeah, I, I, I did the worksheet, but um, you know that there's all these problems in the world, right? Are we gonna like talk about them anytime soon? And it's like they, they, they're really not allowed to. I mean, they're on a schedule. The, it's, 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 you know ship shape or ship out you know um public school the way we are running our society is this over programmed they don't see the even see the road that's ahead of them and we are heading towards a, a cliff but i think that's i mean people are pulling their kids out of, out of public school left and right now people are homeschooling people are questioning everything the government's saying because the government said something else five minutes ago and it's like they're 1984 testing us or something um, yeah <laughs> it, it's like wait wait oceania was sided with asia yesterday but now we're fight oh but we have been fighting them oh i you know it's like people are people yeah, aren't you know stupid sometimes to see what you know how how close we are to what was written in that book yeah. I mean, I see a good reaction to it up here. I mean, I'm up in an area where there's a lot more people doing off-grid living. So I'm seeing a resurgence in, you know, in the homeschooling and alternative schools like Waldorf and Montessori education and ones that are much more tactile, more, you know, that our current public education system is based off the Prussian school uh, system which is basically how to fit people into boxes into military roles well yeah it's abstraction so there is no Mm -hmm. hands-on you have four plus four not four apples plus four apples you're not measuring something as you're building it you're not thinking in three dimensions you're not thinking problem solving critical thinking how or why you're keeping within the first two proximal zones of cognition so you're doing um, recognition and comprehension. So you're like, what's that? It's a pear. Well, what's a pear? A pear is a fruit. So you know, you, that's where we're at with the way we do things. And Common Core is even worse. They're removing, the, they actually remove Bloom's taxonomy um, of cognition from how they're doing things. And so they've removed all the critical application, instead made a recursive event where they're going back with identification and analysis, which is totally the plan you know what i mean like th- that that's what they've been doing this entire time dumbing it down so the scores look better and then rushing faster through things and that's like the factory model right it's like oh well we can sell it without the wings on it this week guys knock the wings off do it faster <laughs> yeah i mean this is this reminds me of um this amazing epiphany i had when i read this book called alphabet versus the goddess and the basis of the book basically is saying that the reason that we're in this left brain, linear, putting everything in a box kind of um, structure, patriarchy, you know, blah, 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 all the left brain's rational linearity is uh, because of the alphabet, because of our ad- 
adaptation of alphabetic symbolism, which requires left brain he got that from uh, modality, and he stole that. Um, it accentuates all of those characteristics in society. Um, so in it's funny because it's saying that uh, literacy in itself isn't always good. It, it may have encouraged a lot of these things. But well, what everybody expected in the 60s was all these kids that were raised on TV were going to be, you know, stupid TV babies, you know, sitting in front of the TV all the time. But all of a sudden, this was the advent of uh, image and sound learning again. Instead of having to learn directly through, uh, you know, reading, we all of a sudden got our information through uh, a visual format and so all of a sudden started uh, conceptualizing things with our right brain. And then what did the 60s kids do? They grew up and went to college and started the first revolution. Well, they, there's they a few things. started thinking outside the box. There's a few things. Ezra Pound in ABCs of reading, um, he's a Nazi sympathizer. I'm not, I'm not like saying Ezra Pound or whatever, but Ezra Pound was the person who created that idea that um, he, we, Eastern cultures learn from... Um, from pictures that turn into words, they're pictographs, and then Western yeah. cultures learn from abstract symbols, which is why when we define things, we're like, well, a cup is a vessel for holding liquid that people can imbibe from. And in, in, Eastern, in Eastern definition, a cup, they're like, well, that's a cup. And they like show you a cup and drink yeah. out of it. You know what I mean? And, and exactly. it's like the thing is the thing rather than the abstraction is the, the simulacra simulacrum thing. So that comes from Ezra Pound. Um, and he, he was like a Nazi sympathizer. And so he's, he's way old school. Um, but he was like crazy on grammar. He actually said everyone should read everything in the original language. So we should be reading things in Koine Greek. We should be reading things in Latin. Very, very intense guy. Uh, and then the thing you were saying about, oh, the right brain thing. Okay, yeah. So if you've researched brains, women have even brains. Their sides are left to right, right, or even because the cerebral cortex is much larger. So it allows information to pass through both sides more evenly and they have more decision pathways when they make a decision, right? And so men are lopsided, but artistic men are actually the opposite of men. Yeah. Which is really weird. Because if you think about it, it's like, well, you're neither a man nor a woman in your brain. You're something else, which is totally fascinating to me. Because if you think of Bacchus, uh, Bacchus was a man that looked like a woman, right? And he was the, uh, the god of like art and wine and poetry, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like on some level, we kind of had this idea that there was like this third brain. But... So you think that we're like therapizing like the third brain, uh, the, the artistic side of our whole society, you think, by nurturing um, the imagery? Yeah, that's, that's at least the conclusion of uh, that book, Alphabet versus the Goddess, is that we've been exercising our left brain, like the, the Western society anyway, the rules of thought, which is why it's broken into dichotomies. But, you know, I think that, yeah, I think, though, that there's that always that, like, that slippery slope of entertainment and, like, right, like, love, lust, like, there's always this, like, degradation. Exactly. And I think that there's, there's always been a good percentage of artists and musicians in the population that have done just fine in reproducing without having to be, you know, left brain intelligent. That's fascinating, too, because when I grew up, I could never read well with music. And then all the people that could read well couldn't write. And so very rare is it the person that's phenomenal at reading music, writing music. And so yeah. it's, it, it's really profound, these, um, these things that we don't see beneath the surface within ourselves. Yeah, most definitely. But I also but, uh... feel like all these rhythms and patterns are also not epigenetically founded. Like, <clears throat> our society creates layers that create epigenetic ripples, right, on our consciousness if we allow it. But for 10,000 years, we've been much more self-reliant and the epigenetic echoes from that are incredibly loud. And so I think with rewilding, we're really getting 
re-in-touching, we're, we're getting re-in-touch with ourselves and our ancestors and what's in our blood. Yeah, most definitely. Part of that, of, of eating wild foods and wild stuff is it's adapted. It also contains these, these hormones and these vitamins and these minerals that we've been lacking in our processed food, stripped out, monoculture diet. Those, those uh, chemicals in the food are activating our epigenetics as well. I mean, it shows that there's the China study showed that when you receive more than 20% milk casein and you're all of a sudden a gene turns on that gives you liver cancer. You stop eating 20% casein in your diet and that gene turns back off. Pretty profound. Sweet. Um, yeah, it's funny. My, uh, I put it out there before the interview. You said, uh, are there any questions? And my friend asked, uh, one question that was really interesting or one, uh, like a, it's pretty funny. He's, he's big into the paleolithic, but he said, what's your favorite, uh, paleolithic megafauna? And, uh, it didn't take me too long. I thought about it for a second. And then all of a sudden, bam, giant ground sloth popped up in my head. And I think it's really fascinating that they existed only like, uh, 5,000 years ago, they, they made it past the 10,000 year weird break where everything kind of died off and they survived out in the Caribbean islands and everything. And ground sloths are really important because they were the natural, uh, reproduction machine for avocados. They would eat avocados whole. The reason avocados are so large and have such a large amount of, uh, fats and proteins and the, the, way that they reproduce in a large uh, compost pile because ground sloths would eat a ton of them whole. They'd pass through their digestive system, then they'd uh, plop them out into a giant compost pile, and then the avocados would sprout. So as humans moved in and ground sloths were killed off and extinct, the avocado trees, the only reason they still survive and exist is because human beings started reproducing them ourselves in a more artificial form creating our own compost piles to put them in. That's incredible. Thank you so much, Ryan. Yeah, thank you. And hopefully we'll catch up and maybe uh, we'll get to film or record one of your presentations and share it with everyone one day. Oh, that sounds wonderful. I'd love to put some video image out there into the world. Absolutely. Well, thank you and have a good night. All right. You too. Because he really knows his stuff. He's dialed in, but he's also very laid back and ready to uh, adapt and evolve, you know, return to that wilderness within us. And man, that was, that was fun. I, I look forward to seeing what Ryan does in the future. Mm -hmm.